IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we're going to review new albums by Manchester Orchestra and Bonnie Prince Billy and Matt Sweeney. My name is Stephen Hyden and I'm joined by my friend and co-host Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? You know, in the alternate universe where we really did have an IndieCast intern, uh, this would be a really sad day because... Uh, there was like an actual Lana Del Rey album announcement happening, and that's maybe what, like our third banter topic. Like it's maybe top five this week. So I mean, we would have to, oh yeah, we would have to sit this intern down and be like, you know what, we thank you for your services, but they're no longer needed. Or what we could possibly do is kind of reassign them to what's becoming. Easily 2021's hottest, uh, you know, intern beat, which is the St. Vincent album rollout beat. Yeah, yeah, the St. Vincent uh, rollout is the uh, greatest thing I think to happen to this show, yeah. certainly, and, and and just music critic uh, discourse in general, because we're still in that groggy pandemic period yeah. where we're, we're we're coming out of the pandemic. You see festival announcements happening, tours are happening. You feel like by the fall, maybe even late summer, things will feel relatively normal again. Uh, but things are still a little bit slow right now. But then along comes St. Vincent. And by the way, I, I was going to say, you know, the original name of this show wasn't IndieCast. It was actually going to be called Daddy's Home. <laughs> was the original title of this. But, but Daddy's like plural. Like, so we would be the daddies. I'm not a father. Coming home. <laughs> yes, but you are a white-collar criminal. So it, uh, it works. That <laughs> Well, that's a joke. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll we'll leave my criminal past out of this, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The uh, the Saint Vincent thing. Okay, for people who maybe weren't paying attention to this this week, there was this blog post that went up. I guess it was on Monday. It was by a British music writer named Emma Madden, who interviewed Saint Vincent recently for some publication. She didn't say who, but uh, she did this interview. And uh, the publicist for St. Vincent asked that it be spiked from the publication, and the publication agreed. And then Emma Madden went ahead and posted the interview on her blog, and it caused a sensation on, on, the, on Twitter and elsewhere. And then a few hours later, it was gone. Yeah. And apparently, I don't know if there, there were sort of... Uh, I would say that it was like, you know, legal threats... I think extortion could also uh, possibly be the word used here. Yeah, it's very it's very strange. And like if if you read the interview, uh, it seems like a pretty straightforward interview. And you know this this whole story went through the normal you know cycle of backlashes where people were you know initially talking about how good this interview was, and then I saw people talking about how bad this interview yeah. was. And for me, what was striking about it is that it was neither good nor bad. It was very straight down the line, mm. almost to the point where if it had been published, I don't know if it would have caused any real response. I mean, it, it seemed like a pretty straightforward interview for this album. My sense from reading it is that the issue was that St. Vincent seems pretty sensitive about being asked about her dad, <laughs> even though the record is called Daddy's Home. Yeah. And she's centered her father's experiences on the record. So it's a very awkward 
situation with this whole thing. Yeah, it's like that joke. It's like I'm being asked a lot of questions that are that should be answered by my t-shirt that I'm wearing. Um yeah, it's like literally <laughs> that playing out in real time. And I think the most depressing part of this inevitable cycle that you're talking about is you, you know, the, you would see like writers talking about how oh, you know, if this was the 70s and this was Lou Reed, we would think that they're a genius. And I think what they're equating is like being difficult with the press or being antagonistic to the press, which can often be very interesting and frankly awesome at times with what actually happened here, which is that the PR company, I'm going to use extortion because I think that's the proper word here, extorted a publication to remove what was an extremely innocuous interview. Uh, and the publication actually went ahead and did it. Like they're, they're saying that's right. cool. It's not like, it's not like it's like one of those interviews where you're just like feeling uncomfortable because it's like, Oh my God, like I really don't know if the artist thought this was on the record or it's like an unprepared interviewer. But um, yeah, like people were like judging the writer as if they, you know, as if they did anything wrong. If it's not like, it, it was very, the, the most obvious precedent for this is when, um, Chance the Rapper's manager, uh, once again, extorted, strong-armed, whatever you want to call it, MTV News into removing a fairly, a lightly negative live review. So, I mean... Like, like you were saying, it's like I, I so few mute people read music ju- journalism anyway that if like St. Vincent actually admitted to doing crimes in this piece, I don't think people might actually like read it or even see it for that matter. Like yeah. it made so much I mean, more news that like they asked it to be removed. Yeah, that, that's the thing too. To go back to what you were saying about like people comparing this to like Lou Reed or you know Courtney Love or any of these other instances where you have musicians being difficult with journalists in those instances the interviews got published yeah (laughs) or they were broadcast like people actually saw them and they were fun to read because of the combativeness yeah the thing about this interview is that the actual interview is pretty staid i mean there's not a lot of conflict you could tell that saint vincent is annoyed yeah (laughs) in the interview but she doesn't really you know fight back she doesn't say anything funny it's more that she just retreats and then obviously she felt upset about the interview after the fact, and then wanted it pulled. I love combative interviews. Oh yeah, I I, I want to read those. Yes. you know, and I would I would be thrilled uh, if this had been published and there was maybe more of a real back and forth. I mean, we've talked about Father John Misty on this show. Yeah. Like his press cycle for pure comedy it was was great for that reason. There was some real back and forth going on between writers. Uh, and, and 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 misty in that in those instances the thing that like blew me away that i wasn't aware of because i guess i wasn't reading a lot of saint vincent profiles during the mass seduction uh, album cycle but <laughs> do your homework steve <laughs> yeah apparently at that time she was making writers like climb into a pink box mm. uh or and then she would like play a recording when she was asked a question that she didn't like like i don't know if it was just like a canned answer that she would play on a on an audio tape but Basically, this behavior, this kind of behavior that I would classify as obnoxious, essentially. Yeah. Uh, and that, to me, is just, again, it's one thing to go back and forth with a writer. Um, it's another thing just to just, like, belittle them or to, like, use your power as, like, a supposed celebrity to make a writer feel stupid yeah. or small. Uh, which I don't think uh, is... Uh, 
tolerable in my mind. And I just have to say that, like, if, if we can be frank here for a minute, most indie rock interviews, they're not worth very much. <laughs> they're not that interesting to read. <laughs> and they don't get that much traffic. Yeah. <laughs> they really don't. I mean... Well, what, what do you mean by indie rock, though? Because, I mean, like, St. Vincent is, like, what I guess you would consider to be, like, indie rock royalty. Well, she's in that, I guess, no man's land between pop music and indie yeah, rock. Yeah, she's, she's like... bigger than most indie rock, but she's not really, like, a huge pop yeah. star. She's, like, a cult level pop star or like an indie superstar which you know, which like means big fish in a small pond or a small fish in a big which pond. means that like when she plays at coachella she like always underdraws relative to her like thing like relative to her like point on the poster and like this is also kind of true of a lot of bands. like i know war on drugs also like seriously underdrew like when it compared to like actual pop stars so you're right she's in that bit of a no man's land where it's like Oh, she made a pop album with Mass Seduction. But, like, are we really talking, like, pop here? So it is that it's, like, pop, but, like, not, you know, pop radio. <laughs> I mean, my only point is, is that, is it really worth putting yourself into a pink box for <laughs> a St. Vincent interview or any interview with a with an indie rock person? I would say not. Nah. <laughs> like, if you are a young writer and you feel like, uh, you know, this person is belittling you, because they're on some power trip or there's some sort of conceptual game that they're playing with their persona in an album cycle. You don't have to be a pawn to that. Uh, I don't think that's the way to go. I actually respect the writer in this instance, Emma, who I feel like actually went against that and made her story a lot more interesting (laughs) uh, because it was spiked and then she was able to put it on her blog. So, So good for her for doing that. You know, you and I were talking about like our favorite <laughs> bad interview experiences. Yeah. Uh, um, and <laughs> we've yeah, had a few. I was thinking, yeah, it, yeah, I mean, you know, I used to work for a small town daily newspaper. So in the aughts, like when I was in my 20s. So that was where most of my bad experiences came in because normally I was interviewing people when they were on tour and like their shows weren't selling that well. <laughs> so they're going to talk to. A writer in Appleton, Wisconsin, uh, like to promote their record. So I remember, like, for instance, interviewing Dickie Barrett of the Mighty Mighty Boss Toads, wow. who was like pretty rude to me. Uh, the guy in the ska band was a rude boy. <laughs> I don't even think you knew you yeah, were he, walking into that, but like, I just had you know, because ska's back. I got, I got, yeah. I got to make that joke. <laughs> he was very ska-tastic. Did that work? I was trying to. Uh, I, was no. try, I was trying to fit ska into sarcastic. It, it was no. hard to do. Yeah. Um. But uh, I have a, a lot of affection for my bad interview experiences. <laughs> like I had a really infamous interview I talk a lot about with Liam Gallagher in 2011. Like where every sentence, every like every question I gave, he he would do like a one sentence response. But it was always really funny and yeah. great. So I asked him like 25 questions in 15 minutes or something. Um, <laughs> And then, of course, I feel like, I don't know if you've had this experience. I feel like there's a rite of passage with music writers where uh, you have to interview Brian Wilson at some point. Yeah. Uh, never where, never have. Ne- never have. Maybe I just don't have that much juice. <laughs> legendary. I, I feel like a lot of people have interviewed him and because he's actually pretty accessible, especially for, you know, an icon of his stature. Yeah. I interviewed him once in the basement of the Metro in Chicago with John Cusack because they were promoting that. Brian Wilson biopic, Love and Mercy. Oh, yeah. And uh, I remember I, was, I talked to him for about 
seven minutes, and then I was in the middle of a question, and he shook my hand and walked away, and that was it. <laughs> and I feel like that's pretty much par for the course with Brian Wilson. He's always like that. He just checks out randomly, and and then you're done. <laughs> um, you have some good exp- like good bad experiences. Yeah, I right? mean. The the closest I got to like the Lee, the either the Liam Gallagher the Liam Gallagher like uh, antagonistic '90s icon or the um, Brian Wilson notoriously difficult was uh, Billy Corgan. Um, that one was just like a <laughs> lot of fun because it you know this was like 2018 maybe when he was doing a solo album so like it's fun to like have someone who like kind of is unknown entity for being difficult with journalists but like also a little bit you know, past their prime. So they have like good stories and like they have a whole history of that. So that's fun. But I mean, there, when I think of like my bad interviews there, there are several kinds there. You're my version of like you being at the Wisconsin, uh, small town paper was being a contributing editor at pitchfork from like 2012 to 15. And I would get to interview bands who either like just got best new music on their first album or like who had, signed to a bigger label or PR company and like we're doing a rising and those are those ones are bad because like they just don't really have anything to say yet or they're like as surprised to be interviewed as you are to be interviewing them like if anyone remembers the band poolside they're still around actually but that was like a that was like a prime example of like are you sure you want to interview us dude I'm like yeah let's do this thing and it was fun but it was just like hmm Maybe we're going to turn this one into a uh, right through instead of a Q and A. Like those are like that's the that that is like one species of a bad interview where it's like these questions and answers are just so uninteresting. Like let me do the lifting. They're the ones where like they're just like kind of bad vibes. Um, I'm not going to name who those were. It's just like let me get through this interview and just put this out there and be a good trooper. They're the unusable interviews. Can you give us a hint? You got to give us a hint. Um, I, I, you can't just I, throw that out there and say I'm not going to say. Uh, you know what? If you know me, if you've talked to me in person, you know who this person is. I'm not going to put their. <laughs> bit, I'm not going to put their business out there because, like, look, I think I have enough PR people soft blocking me. Uh, is this like a, is it a contemporary artist or is yeah it, uh, like yeah a, they're still okay. they're still making music. Um, oh man, okay, yeah, and then there are like the unusable interviews where I, I interviewed Migos one time for a pitchfork guest list, which like the questions are prepared. They know like, it's like weirdest fan interaction, things like that. And they did a conference call. It was like all three of them dialing in on a conference call where the reception was just so awful and you couldn't hear a thing they were saying. And you know, they're really, really funny on record, but just like really disengaged in person. And like the only thing that came through really clear was just like, they said some really offensive stuff and I'm just like, yeah, we, we can't use this at all. And, um, and then there was the time I interviewed St. Vincent. Uh, I actually oh, have, my, you have a St. Vincent story. <laughs> I do have a St. Vincent story. So this is like, this is when I was like super new to interviewing people. Like this must've been 2012. Um, and I just started like interviewing bigger people and this was at Coachella. I get a, I get like an email a couple hours beforehand. She was doing her, a collaborative album with David Byrne, another notoriously hard person to interview. And it's like, Oh, okay. Okay. I got to like think of questions. I got to like get prepared. Um, I'm just going to go to their trailer, like as instructed and interview them for like 20 minutes about this album. I've never heard. And you know, this, I think this was like the one year it rained at Coachella. 
So I had like a hat on, I had like a jacket, I had my backpack, like, you know, not at nice. all looking like I am a cool rock journalist. Not that, <laughs> you know, like not, not that there's such a thing, but like, this is really, yeah. and so I step in the trailer and, you know, I had heard about her being like a little like uh standoffish or difficult. And the first, like without a beat, I step in the trailer and the first thing she says, like, what the hell are you going camping or something? And, you know, that just established that, you know, that's just like alpha, oh. alpha dominant behavior. She had established her dominance. And, you know, I'm just sitting there thinking, like, am I going to get out of this thing? Like, am I going to get any cool answers out of this? And I think the article that eventually ran was like a couple of paragraphs. Like, I don't think Did I you- got like, I don't think I got any gold, man. <laughs> so you didn't quote the camp. You didn't quote the camping line. Cause that's actually uh, kind of a funny line. I it's funny. Say, that, that was, that was funny, but it was like, she was making, my cap. she, she was trying to make make, you feel uncomfortable. Yeah, exactly. Like she was establishing her dominance and making it right. very clear that like she was running things. And I mean, if I had been someone who was like a more seasoned, uh, you know, journalist, I would have like, you know, ran with it. But like, you know, there's a huge disparity in the power dynamic. And I'm just going to like sit there with like my dumbass little hat on and my backpack and like, you know, do that and like maybe feel better after I go see like neon Indian. So, (laughs) I mean, you know, I'll throw this out there. Like I'll interview St. Vincent. If she wants to insult me, I'm all for it. We'll do the interview. It'll be really funny. And then we'll publish it. And I think that would be a good interview where it's just, St. Vincent insulting me, a rock journalist, yeah. and people will get a kick out of it. And we'll, again, we'll actually let it be published. We won't do sort of a straight down the line interview that doesn't get published. I think that's not the way to go. Yeah. But maybe St. Vincent should just lean into like the insult comic, Don Rickles. Yeah, go full heel, aspect. man. Go full heel. Like embrace it, man. That's the problem with a lot of these indie rock artists. Like, yeah, they, be, they, be, the, be the bad we need guy. Villains. You know, Exactly, and you know, I I actually would get behind that. I think that would be fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this thing of where you're, you're you're doing the half measure, where you still want to be perceived as this nice person. No, get that out of the way. Yeah. Call me a hockey puck. <laughs> you know, do the Don Rickles thing. I'm throwing that out there. I think that'd be fun to do. Um, let's go to our mailbag segment here. We have a question today from our, a listener named Mike in Arlington, Virginia. Mike, thanks for writing in. He says, hi, Stephen Ian, longtime fan of both of your writing and your podcasting. Thank you. I was in the grocery store this week when I heard who bestanks the reason. Oh, yeah. And the phrase, how to save a life, come on back to back. See, that's when you know life is returning to normal. You go to the grocery <laughs> store and you hear who bestank. We're living in the greatest country in the world right there. Um, it got me thinking about former hit songs that you maybe won't hear on the radio anymore, but you could hear at your chain supermarket anytime you walk in. Uh, the Grocery Store Hall of Fame songs, if you will. Yes. Uh, so my question is, are there any singles from IndieCast artists that you can see entering the canon of great grocery store songs? Did Pretty Pimpin' get enough airplay to make the cut? Is Red Eyes by The War on Drugs the kind of song you can imagine hearing as you get lost looking for toilet paper? I actually have heard Red Eyes in Walgreens before. Really? Uh, yeah, so it's pretty epic. I don't know, maybe I've got like a cool indie rock DJ working at my local Walgreens. I don't know. Um, or or a guy who just looks exactly like me. Maybe they recognize me and they thought, <laughs> make Steve's day. You'd like to think that, wouldn't you? <laughs> when he's looking for, uh, you know, antihistamines or something. Uh, five years from now, will I be hearing Don't Wanna by, by Haim as I peruse the meat aisle for Smithfield thick-cut bacon <laughs> to make my Sunday BLT? Uh, 
is Mike getting a cut from the Smithfield people? That's a very yeah. specific reference there. <laughs> I don't. We might have to bleep that out. We don't want to. Yeah, we, we have no ba- plugs. We have free. no bacon allegiance, man. Like this, we yeah. are not doing epic bacon podcasting. This is not 2014. Yeah, this is the, this is the last time Smithfield. If you want to advertise on the show, contact our people and pay the money. Don't be sneaking in plugs yeah. into our listener questions. Uh, <laughs> Any recommendations would be greatly appreciated. P.S. As excited as I am about the 10-year anniversary podcast for Muses the Second Law, man, it's like we're on the hook for this. Our jokes have manifested this. People out there are demanding. I I swear, most of our letters reference Muses the Second Laws at this point. I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that their best record... Origin of Symmetry turns 20 in just a few months. Figured Ooh. it deserved a quick shout out with all the Muse mentions on the pod lately. Origin of Symmetry, it's, that's a good record. I like Origin yeah. of Symmetry. Mm. Um, so yeah, so he's asking about grocery store songs. This is a great topic. Ah, oh, love it. Um, yeah, you know, when I was thinking about my answer to this question, I was thinking about the songs that I often hear in the grocery store mm-hmm. uh, or, or at Walgreens because I'm not in grocery stores as much as I am in Walgreens and, and mm-hmm. CVS. And I feel like my... The all-time song for me in those spaces is Barely Breathing by Duncan Sheik. Ooh, Do you know that song? Good one, yeah. I hear that, I hear that song all the time. Also, the song Sunny Came Home mm. by... Um, Sean Colvin. By Sean Colvin, yeah. Like, Do you know that song? That's a, oh, yeah. such a mid-90s... Yeah, absolutely. And moreover, Sean Colvin is also famous for like being interrupted by Old Dirty Bastard, you know, the Wu-Tang for the Children <laughs> thing at the right. Grammy. So, you know, I would say Sunny Came Home is like maybe her second... Uh, biggest uh, contribution to pop culture at this point. You know, I was listening to Sunny Came Home this morning, getting ready for the <laughs> show, because I was like, oh, "Yeah, that's a grocery store jam." It is, and I was amazed by how much of current indie rock sounds like that song. Yeah, like, the Boy Genius Crew. Yeah, is such Sunny Came Home. I, that yeah. could be a Phoebe Bridgers song. Like, is Phoebe Bridgers covered? Sean Colvin. She's I mean, covered so much stuff. It's particularly indie <laughs> cast type stuff that, I mean, she was doing yeah. like, before she got famous, like the house that heaven built, I think. And like did American. She do that? Fo- yeah. I really think she did the house that heaven built. Oh my God. That's crazy. So, you know, I would definitely say, you know, the boy genius crew to me seems like future Walgreens CVS. You and I had some disagreement about like which Phoebe Bridger song it would be. Yeah. I think it'd be motion sickness, but you disagree. You think it'd be, Kyoto, right? Yeah, I think it's going to be that one. A, because like I hear it in a lot of, I hear it already. And I think that it's more kind of like, you know, Punisher being her big commercial Grammys breakthrough. I think it's going to be more recognizable to people. Although motion sickness does sound a bit more like Sunny Came Home. Would not be surprised if I hear Kyoto. Um, in, like of the boy genius extended universe, I really think that's the one that you're going to hear a lot. Um, also, like, yeah, Google all slide first ballot Hall of Famer. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, what, like, I am not leaving the grocery store when that's on. Same with Found Out About You by Jim Blossoms. That gets it oh, popping and sprouts. Like, I'm in grocery stores a lot, so um, maybe that's why this always becomes like this running theme. On the flip side, um, I hear Blessed Union of Souls. She likes me for me. Hey, Leonardo, which. I, like I hear that song, uh, all, it's the I like that is like a first ballot worst song, worst single of all time. Like, oh yeah, uh, I, that might be my my most hated song. Yeah, ever. it's in the conversation for sure. Awful yeah, song. but yeah, otherwise, Haim like they are going to 
be in grocery stores until as long as they can draw breath, as long as like there are actual like in-person grocery stores. Started to hear Casey Musgraves high horse a lot. That one's also happening. But I, I also oh, yeah. feel like I also feel like this conversation's like a tiny bit disingenuous because like all the stuff that we're mentioning, like if IndyCast was doing this question in nineteen ninety eight or whatever, like we wouldn't say, Oh yeah, Sean Colvin and Duncan Sheik, those are gonna be like in grocery stores. Like we'd be like, Whoa, is Gold Sounds gonna be in uh Ralph's in twenty twenty one? No, we wouldn't, because it, it wouldn't have been. Uh, we would have thought those things were too cool. We would have had more of an attitude about it. I think. Yeah, exactly. We're talking about this. We're talking about this. There used to be this thing of like, oh, you hear this song in a dentist office. You hear the song in a grocery store. It'd be yeah. a way to knock the song. And mm-hmm. I think we all like. like we love these songs. Like, yeah. I, I like. I like barely breathing a lot. I, oh, I appreciate hearing yeah. that in the grocery store. Or in the CVS whenever I'm there. Or yeah, uh, slide. I feel like slide. Is a song I've heard so many times when the automatic door is like literally sliding open. Like you, yeah. the, you walk into the store and like the doors open and you hear like the guitar riff starts immediately. Oh, yeah. That's happened to me a couple times with that song. It's very cinematic. It makes you very feel cinematic. like you're in a '90s film when yeah. that song comes on and you're just walking around Walgreens. Um, so yeah, we so yeah, the, we aren't knocking these songs. No, I think they're. There is this genre of like contemporary indie rock that has some cachet, but also is pretty normy sounding. So you can <laughs> hear it in these spaces, and it makes yeah. sense. And I think that's the kind of music we're talking about here. Yeah, I also think that like whatever songs end up being the slide or the barely breathing, uh, you know, twenty years from now, like we're not aware. It might be like I don't know, Glass Animals, or just like one of these it's songs true. that. Yeah, something that like doesn't like that we're not talking about, but is super popular. So maybe it'd be like the neighborhood. Yeah, they're a little like too. Ed- they're a little too edgy. I think. I think they're too edgy. You got to have like it's got to be like singer songwritery. Like, yeah, it, it, it's it's not going to be indie cast core. You might get an inclusion or two, but it's probably going to be like I don't know, like Leon Bridges or something like that. Well. If I can make a segue into our next topic here, <laughs> I've heard a song by our next band that we're going to talk about, Manchester Orchestra, The Gold. I've heard yeah. that song in Walgreens. They make se- they, they had a song on the last album about the grocery store, so it was called The Grocery. <laughs> I'm not familiar with it. What is this? Is it an yeah, album that, about the grocery store? No, they made on a black mile of the surface, they had a song called The Grocery. And they had oh, another right. song that mentioned being in the grocery store. There, those were not the same songs. But yeah, I have heard the That's golden true. whole. I have heard the golden Whole Foods, and it goes down great in that space. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, this, this this works really well. Let's talk about Manchester Orchestra. This is a band uh, that f- uh, is from Atlanta. They formed in two thousand four. Uh, they put out their first record in 2006. It's called I'm Like a Virgin Losing a Child. This is a band that started out really centered around the lead singer and songwriter, a guy named Andy Hall. And he's the charter member of the band. And I guess the other like longest running member of the band is a guy named Robert McDowell, who's the guitar yeah. player and really the co-pilot in terms of producing the records. And Manchester Orchestra, to me, you know, we, we've talked on the show about how artists in different genres sometimes get ghettoized in their genre where they only uh-huh. get discussed in that context and they don't for whatever reason get allowed to enter like the larger sort of indie rock conversation and Manchester Orchestra to me is one of the biggest examples of that in terms of like 
emo bands. Uh, because this is a band that I feel like, depending on what your background is, you either think this band is huge or like you've never heard of them yeah. at all. And what compounds that for me is that when I listen to this band, they actually sound very much like a, a like a mainstream alternative rock band. Like to me, like that's their lineage. Like those 90s mainstream bands, some of which we've just referenced, more than like the emo or punk canon. I maybe more so on their like their first two records, they were more in that vein. But I think starting with Simple Math mm-hmm. in uh in 2011, they really moved into this more grandiose, very orchestrated, guitar-heavy, big choruses type music. And I always feel like they're a band that, like, if you are into that kind of alternative rock, you like you would love this band. Like, I've interviewed Andy Hull a couple times, and he's joked about how they've been compared to Band of Horses. Oh yeah, <laughs> and I actually think that's like a fairly, I mean, it's it a really reductive is. comparison. But it's not wholly inaccurate, and if it gets you in the door, I would, mm. I would actually lean into that. They're like Band of Horses with heavier guitars, yeah. Uh, basically, although on the last couple of records, the guitars haven't been uh, all that heavy. Uh, but their their latest record it comes out uh, today. It's called "The Million Masks of God," and uh, it really continues this trajectory that they've been on. Um, that began with a black mile to the surface, which had that hit single, "The Gold." on it and where they've moved like away from that emo punk thing that they had in the first couple records from the alt rock thing that they had on the middle records to more of like a mature sounding indie type sound like when the gold came out to me that reminded me of trouble will find me era national like it had that kind of vibe to it to me and i think the latest record continues in that vein Really beautiful, really well produced, lots of different sounds to it, really good songwriting. Um, it's the kind of record, again, that I think if you are into the kind of bands that we talk about on this show, you'll like this record. It's just interesting to me how I feel like they're still in that lane somewhat. I mean, I think their last record broke them out of it uh, to a greater degree than any record they put out previously, but I don't know, it's just a fascinating case study to me and how bands get slotted even as they change and maybe don't really belong in that lane anymore. Yeah. The thing is like, I would not call it like they're emo adjacent at most. Like I just want to put it on like the record that there's emo flavoring to it, but otherwise they're like kind of the last of their kind, as far as like alt rock bands, as you had mentioned, like um, also I just want to point out like my, I feel like my life's gotten a lot easier since I've like, you know, turned around and started to really enjoy their music. Like it was so it was, it's really difficult sometimes when there's like a band that you is kind of at the center of a lot of music that you do like, but you just haven't been able to like latch onto it. Um, and I think that what's, what happens so many times is a lot of what we, I don't know, as critics or as fans try to like point out as like objective, uh, views of music is, you know, determined by circumstance. Like when they first started popping, in like you know mean everything to nothing and such like i was in a point like i had a conversation with nina corcoran who's like a huge manchester orchestra fan and wrote about mean everything to nothing we started talking about like how you have your like emo phase and at like 22 there's like a very frequent uh almost like a rumspringa where like those people like go super hard into indie rock and like just disavow everything that had come before. And, you know, that was the phase I was in. Like I heard them and I'm like, okay, this is like, you know, 
this is all rock right here. Like I'm not interested in it. And that album you're talking about, I Mean Everything to Nothing, it came out in 2009. Yeah. Could not be farther away from where indie rock was at that point. You know, Absolutely. The Brooklyn art rock thing. Yeah. Collective, Grizzly Bear, which we've talked about on the show. We love those bands. You got to tell your Fiery Furnaces story with this with right here. Like, I think that's one of my... The, the, what what it, what it happened? I'll 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 take this one for Steve because like in two thousand, I talked to my fiance actually. Like she was big into um, the evangelical Christian rock, like alt rock scene, punk or whatever in like the early two thousands, which means that she saw a lot of me without you. And I asked her, it's like, hey, have you heard of Manchester Orchestra? She's like, yeah, I saw him a few times with uh, me without you. And what Manchester Orchestra, like what Andy told you, was that. They played an early show, I think it was in Cleveland, and they had to, you know, load out afterwards because uh, Fiery Furnaces was going on afterwards. And they were like, there were 500 people there to see Me Without You who are not mentioned on any of the cool websites, and there were like 40 people to see Fiery Furnaces. This was like 2007, by the way. So, I mean, that was that just really just kind of draws out right. like why the arc of history bends towards bands like Manchester Orchestra and Me Without You. I know for me, like, I didn't get into them really until cope which was uh, 2013 and i remember seeing that album cover in a a store and it's just cope and like yeah black and white cover and uh which i thought was a really cool looking cover and they just seemed like this band that almost came from like a bizarro world of like it's like why hadn't i heard about this like this just seemed like the kind of thing i would like and I hadn't heard anything about it. And then I went back and I heard their other records and I really liked it. Um, but yeah, they just are one of those bands that, for whatever reason, they just fall in the cracks of where music coverage is on a lot of the big indie rock sites. And uh, it, it just seems like maybe the reason for that is that at every point in their career, they've made a record that really was not what the fashionable thing was to do. Like when they put out Cope in 2013, that's a very loud guitar record. It's probably yeah, it's their heaviest that. sounding record. Tom Notch rules uh, though. That song, that song rules. <laughs> and that, that whole album I think is great. I think it's a, that's a great springtime record. Uh, I like it a lot in the same way. I like band of horses around this yeah. time here. Um, but you know, 2013, that was the year when, you know, we've talked about this on this podcast. That was the year when indie rock was really taking a turn toward pop music. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you had Lord in the 1975 and, and Haim, and that was the thing, almost going away from heavy guitars. And then yeah. they, they make their heaviest sounding record. And it just seems like they've done that consistently throughout their career, which is not going to get you a lot of coverage. But for the people who appreciate that, it's going to bond them even tighter to you because... Manchester Orchestra really is the kind of band where if you like this kind of like anthemic, beautiful sounding, epic, even bombastic indie yeah. rock or, or or alt rock, there's not a lot of people doing it. And no. th- th- they've really kind of cornered the market, I think, in a way <laughs> for people who still like that kind of music. And they feel like, oh, this band is giving it to me and I appreciate it. Yeah, exactly. I think that um, with... You know, they got compared early on to Neutral Milk Hotel and Bright Eyes and um, so forth. And nowadays, like, their new record is produced by, um, you know, Catherine Marks, who worked on, like, St. Vincent, Bjork, I believe, and Ethan Gruska, who um, was Phoebe Bridgers' producer. Also, Phoebe Bridgers uh, covered The Gold, I think, with Andy Hull back in 2017. 
But, you know, I think that I think the narrative changed in 2000. Like they didn't do anything different as like between Cope and Black Mile. But like by the time Black Mile came around, you had a lot of people like Julian Baker and Touche Amore and Foxing um, who were just talking about like how much this band meant to them. And, you know, like you, you stay popular or, for long enough. And eventually those teens that you, um, you know, reached will become writers themselves and be like, no, you guys got it all wrong. But the good, but the thing is like black mile on the surface, which just sounds so different than anything they had done before. And this album, it goes even further into like, you had mentioned trouble will find me, uh, era, the national. And I think that's a, you know, it's a good, um, it's a good, uh, comparison because it kind of scales down those like brawny, uh, you know, I would say almost Southern rock guitars, uh, for more like acoustic stuff. Uh, you know, more kind of light electronics and it's their chillest record. But also I think the one that I, I enjoy listening to the most because, you know, even Black Mile of the Surface, the highs were really high, but like sometimes I, you know, towards the back half of the album, I drift a bit, but this one seems like the most complete where they, I mean, they've like reinvented themselves. And I, I think that it's really cool to see a band kind of weather the, critiques of people such as myself i i interviewed andy um you know they were super like i think that's like just super cool that like you know when i got to interview an artist that i'd been tough on before um and you know i think they're at a point where they are i mean their fan base is super strong they did their black mile of the surface concert for free they're just a great example of like what it really what really can happen if like you stick to your guns and just you know, kind of trust the process. And eventually like this stuff does get rewarded in the end. They're like a, like a nuclear version of an indie cast core type of band where, <laughs> right. you know, like they're like, you know, a lot of the bands that we talk about, like maybe you're rocking with like 80,000, like Spotify listeners at best, but like Manchester orchestra is like kind of the model. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it is interesting to me because like you said, you interviewed uh, Andy, I think Robert, uh, yeah. last week and um, you know and they were cool when you talked to them I, I think that with a band like this unlike say a St. Vin- Vincent like Manchester Orchestra they don't expect to get great press and they're not yeah. relying on great press in order to find an audience they've been around for a long time they, they're doing their own thing I think they could probably take or leave the press I'm sure they like to get nice reviews and have you know big features written about them but um, you know there is this thing where I think some artists almost feel entitled to getting great press and then mm-hmm. other there's others that maybe never really got it and they found out a way to build a great career mm-hmm. on their own uh where they can take or leave it and that always seems like the best way to yeah. go uh, and i'll just add before we move on to our next topic that if you haven't listened to this band and you listen to this show i think you definitely want to dig into the back catalog this de- mm-hmm. this is a band where there's a lot of records that maybe you haven't heard of that you're really gonna dig just a really good straightforward rock band in an era where there's not a whole lot of bands like that so check them out um let's move on to our next record this is uh a record called super wolves by bonnie prince billy and matt sweeney uh this is record is a sequel of sorts to an album called super wolf that came out in 2005 bonnie prince billy of course is a uh a pseudonym used by uh the singer songwriter uh will oldham who of course has been very prolific over the last uh, I guess 25 or so years 
And uh, Matt Sweeney is a guitar player. He played in a band called Chavez in the 90s, really good <laughs> band. He was also in a band called Swan. Um, yes. Corgan, which I think at some point we need to do a whole episode on on, on Swan, or at least part of an episode. Uh, yeah. We can get some good Swan content. Um, and they made this record together called, called Super Wolf in, in 2005, uh, came out on Drag City. Kind of a cult record. It didn't get a whole lot. You know, they didn't do a lot of press for the record. They didn't play a lot of shows. Yeah. For a long time, you you couldn't hear the album uh, because, like, a lot of Drag City records that wasn't on any streaming oh, yeah. platforms. That's right. It wasn't. It wasn't streaming until only three years ago. Uh, so. I had the CD, of course, so I could listen to it whenever <laughs> I wanted. Uh, but a lot of people couldn't hear the record. But I, I, I've always loved Superwolf. I think it's a beautiful record. You know, Will Oldham, in general, is a little hit or miss for me. Like a lot of his records, I find to be a little affected, and uh, yeah. there's just something I, I, I don't really get into it. But working with Matt Sweeney, who is really like an old school guitar player. I mean, he's yeah. played on so many different kinds of records. He's played on every. He's played with everyone from like Adele to Neil Diamond. He's played on six organs of admittance records. You know, he played with Billy Corgan. Uh, he's a very gregarious, <laughs> warm-hearted guy. Yeah, you know, he's played with Robert Pollard. Um, and I, I think that his generosity and his guitar playing brings something to olden songs that to me just makes it more of a magical combination. It almost has like that mid-70s Neil Young type vibe to it. Real... Beautiful, but also kind of gra- grainy and grimy, and you know, there's always like a dark, sinister edge to uh, the music that they make together. And um, I love the new record, Super Wolves. Um, to me, this is like one of my favorite records of early 2021. One of the things I really like about it too is that, along with the, the great dynamic between Oldham and Sweeney, you also have the involvement of uh, Mdu Mokhtar, oh. the great African guitar player who plays on him and his band play on three songs including uh, one of the singles, Hall of Death, which is this very kind of buoyant shredder of a song. Yeah, that uh, one's, that's really, I like that one, yeah. That's really the Emdu Mokhtar influence. Oh, I mean, that sounds more I like I had no Mokhtar idea he song. was on it. Yeah, and, and by the way, Emdu Mokhtar, I'm going to talk about him again on this show. His, yeah. his new record comes out in May. It's a fabulous record. Um, but uh, I, my feeling is that I'd probably like this more than you because yeah. this seems like the uh, the classic record that, Ian Cohen is not going to be into uh, this <laughs> critically acclaimed folk rock record. I feel like just <laughs> that alone, before you hear anything, Ian is like, okay, I'm, I'm not feeling this. Like, am I wrong here? <laughs> well, or, or I mean, not? It, it's funny because uh, in a lot of ways, our thoughts on Will Oldham are pretty similar. Like I got to point out though, that like I see a darkness, the one that came out in 1999, um, Johnny Cash covered the title track. That yes. um, that I just, that was the first one I had discovered. It was on the top ten of like Pitchforce originally not original nineteen nineties best album list, and like I was twenty two, really starting to like get a sense of like the history of like indie rock, drag city, etc. And like that one to me is an all timer. Like that that is just an incredible singular record. I still put it on like quite rarely. It's maybe like a once a year listen, and still like wow, this one really yeah, it's a great record. Me. Yeah, I'm with that. I'm with you on that too. Yeah. Otherwise, though, it's a bit diffuse. He puts out a lot of records. I liked um, the one he did in 2008, Lie Down in the Light and Letting Go. And he did in 2006, which I think he did in Iceland. And there's like a lot of really cinematic string uh, arrangements for that one. But otherwise, I mean, with him uh, and, 
you're right in that, like, the whole Drag City aesthetic, man, like, um, you know, guys like Will Oldham and Bill Callahan and, you know, Steve Malkmus by extension, who are just seen as, like, these, I guess, role models for, you know, being, like, 40 or 50 years old in indie rock, you know, they have this kind of playful wisdom, make you kind of wish they were your uncle or whatever, and, you know, I think that's, that's cool, I think it's good they exist, but, like, I have the, like, the vibe is just off with me. Like I like people who are like in their forties and fifties and just talking about like how fucked up they still are, you know, like Fred Thomas or the Renz or like, or Mike Kinsella, um, you know, guys who can still get super emo with it in their forties. And, you know, I know that like, you don't have to choose one or the other, but you know, my tastes are my tastes. And, um, you know, with this, with this combination in particular, like I've never listened to Chavez. Like I know that like, that's a rite of passage for 90s indie rock. I also was never a huge slint person either. Um, I did. I will vouch for Zwan. By the way, what a what an irony. Uh, Drag City Records are on streaming. Zwan, not. Um, I know. But <laughs> That's why we got to do a Zwan episode. We have I know, to, man. Uh, we, we, we manifest have to a lot. We get Zwan on there. I know we manifest a lot of things on this show. Maybe that could be it, but um, you know, would it be I amazing? Never... Like after this episode goes up, <laughs> Spotify puts out an announcement: full Swan yeah. catalog. Oh god, that would be <laughs> for awesome. Streaming. I mean, it's just one album, but yeah. Um, uh, you know, I saw yeah. Swan live. By the way, have you ever seen? Oh. Did you see Swan play? I I don't think I, I have. I don't think I had like money to see to see Swan. <laughs> they played a they played a they played a uh, gymnasium at St. Norbert College in Ashwaubenon, Wisconsin <laughs> in like 2002. That's where I saw them. I should have asked Matt Sweeney about that. I interviewed him for uh, I wrote a profile uh, about Superwolves. I should have asked Matt about if he remembers playing St. Norbert College with Swan. That would have been a fun. I mean, how can you how can you forget? <laughs> That's I mean, like I think to me like what you're saying about the I mean I I all the artists that you mentioned, uh, Callahan. No, yeah. I, I mean, I love all those artists, but I, I mean, I kind of understand what you're saying. I think the difference with this collaboration for me is Sweeney, who I think is yeah. like more of like a rock guy. And I yeah. appreciate what he brings to Oldham songs, which, you know, yeah, I see a darkness is great. I mean, he's put out so many albums that like, there's definitely some here and there that I, that I quite like, but yeah, there is something about him that, I find sometimes on his own to be a little obtuse, a little the, hard to connect with. The, I use use affectations, and I think there's like the use of language, like he'll say like "the" or something like that, or like "I am a youth inclined to ramble." Like, I mean, that song in particular, like, is where I start to tune out a bit. But there's like this kind of like I don't know, like English major. I mean, he's an actor as well, so I mean, he you know plays a role. But like, there's this old timey sort of uh at, you know the affectations and also like the songs about like shorty's arc i mean it's like okay i get it it reminded me of that uh sufjan stevens song decatur where they rhymed like everything with um you know abraham lincoln or whatever it's like it's it's a little <laughs> bit much for me well so i think this is like pretty standard i think people listening to the show would have would have expected us to come down on this divide where yeah. you I think probably think the album's okay, but you're not going to listen to it again. Yeah. Whereas I am the folk rock wimp on this show, <laughs> and I really love this album. I think it's one of my favorites of the year so far. So yeah. whoever is whoever team you're on, you know, if you're on Team Ian, you, you know, go with him. If 
you're on Team Steve, you can go with me. We're as, uh, Team Ian is down with Hall of Death. That's the one that's like kind of in a math rock sort of uh, time signature. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, Hall of Death is where I think that's like the IndyCast core song. But, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll say this, though. Like, MD Mokdar. MD yeah. Mokdar, man. We're going to talk about that. He's great. When I was listening to this song, like on my ride home in traffic, I wasn't feeling it. But this morning, it was sun was coming out. I was walking my dog. I'm like, oh, I'm getting. I, 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 <laughs> I can see myself seeing myself being like a super wolf person by the end of the year. Okay, we've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? All right, so, I mean, I'm sure that if you're Team Ian, you expect me to talk about Origami Angel, and I did a piece for them on Stereo Gum. You can read that. You know what it is with me and Gami Gang. But I wanted to actually pick out something that was a little uh, off the beaten path as far as like what you might expect from IndyCast. Uh, Porter Robinson, uh, you might remember him from 2014-ish, let's say. Uh, a guy who would play like ultra festival and like anime um, conventions. It, his sound on worlds was sort of like M83 or passion pit, their pop songs transferred to a kind of EDM world. Also maybe a little bit of like K-pop or J-pop uh, went away for about seven years. And I mean, this style of music could not sound more dated. And yet his new album, Nurt- his new album nature um, it's, I, I, I'm such a sucker for 2014. Like th- this, this, this loophole where like seven years ago feels older than like 20 years ago. Um, it's very uplifting. A lot of the songs are about just like getting through writer's block to actually make this album after seven years. Um, if you miss Passion Pit, if you miss like Saturdays Equal Youth era M83, you know this guy. Uh, he's he is not. Always there when you call, but he's always on time, as Ja Rule and Ashanti once said. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, it's just like it fills such a specific void and like such one that like I need from time to time. Um, it really just kind of cuts through the usual stuff that I'm listening to, and you know, I, I would say that like it is it good Porter Robinson? Is it just more Porter Robinson? The fact that it exists. Um, it really gets me in a, in a, in a, in a happier place. So I highly recommend yeah. that. Well, I'm glad you talked about this record. We actually got a question about Porter Robinson that I didn't use for this episode, but a, a listener was asking about Porter Robinson. So whoever that is out there, I didn't yeah. tell Ian about that Ian <laughs> was just on the same wavelength as you yes. bringing that up. Um, so I've been on this bad habit lately where I keep talking about albums that aren't out yet. And I hope that's not annoying to people, but you know, I'm a music critic. I listen to a lot of promos and sometimes I forget when things come out and I don't realize it until I have something to recommend and I realize, oh, it's not coming out for another month. But, uh, I just want to say that the new Mannequin Pussy, uh, EP, uh, which comes out, uh, next month and, uh, it is called Perfect. It's coming out on Epitaph Records, just like their previous album, Patience did. Mm. Um, it's really good. I've been listening to it a lot. Uh, lately you know i've just been on this kick now like where i'm into like 
really catchy pop rock type stuff. Like it yeah. just seems like that time of the year, the windows are, 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 are open. I'm out in the sunshine. I just want to hear shiny guitar rock songs with great hooks. And, uh, I think that's definitely true of this EP. Um, and it, if you were a fan of patience, I think you're going to like this record to me. Patience was a record where it seemed like the idea was we're going to sound like celebrity skin era hole and mm. just build on that template. And, uh, which is great. I love that era of whole, again, grungy rock songs that have a radio-friendly sheen. I mean, I think that's been the aesthetic that Mannequin Pussy has embraced lately, which is kind of funny considering their name. I don't know yeah. if they actually get played on the radio anywhere. I noticed that on the promo email that Epitaph sand, sent out that they were calling them Mannequin P in yeah. the subject line. Maybe so it wouldn't go to spam filter. I, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's actually what it is. Yeah. like Okay, a lot, it makes sense. Yeah. There are a lot of bands that that are like that. Um, even if, like, though, I think sometimes if it has like the word "guns" in the title or something like that. Right. So this is a band again. Like I and I love the lead singer Marisa Marisa uh, Dabis. Uh, I love her voice. Uh, I think she's like one of my favorite, you know, punk rock singers right now. And uh, I would recommend. You know, you can't hear the whole EP yet, but they did oh. put out a single recently called "Control," which you can. Go check out on your favorite streaming platform of choice. I don't know if it's also on Bandcamp if you want to download it uh, somewhere. Uh, put some uh, money in Mannequin Pussy's pocket. Uh, but but this is a great song, Control. Speaking of putting money in their pocket, shout out to Mayor of Easttown. They, um, the, uh, what, the teen who's in a band in that show is wearing a Mannequin Pussy t-shirt. Mannequin, they are also playing Mannequin Pussy songs. It's like I saw that show on HBO starring Kate Winslet doing an absolutely perfect Chester County Pennsylvania accent and I'm like wait a minute is that a mannequin pussy song or is it but like it turns out they actually contributed to that show um so uh-huh. yeah they're on an eight it's a small funny story like apparently like the, they asked the hotel year <laughs> to be a part of that as well and like Christian Holden uh in a tweet they deleted said they asked for too much money and so they got passed over well I'm glad Mannequin Pussy got that money. And yeah. I hope they get more money for their upcoming EP. I think it's really good. It's called Perfect. It comes out May 21st. I'll try to mention it again when we get closer to that date. To just to remind you, but for now, go check out Control. Really good rock song. A good way to usher in your weekend. Um, that does it, I think, for this episode of IndieCast. So yep. thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with more news, reviews. Hashing out trends, maybe another St. Vincent controversy, if we're lucky. You know, I guess we'll see what happens. We'll be back next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.